what is the next invention. You know, it, it's something that's sitting in front of our faces there on our flight hand bench, you know. And, you know, it's not just putting in a blue tinsel or a holographic tinsel. It's, it's a style variation and it's there and it's going to happen. You know, who's going to do it? Hello and welcome to the Ireland on the Fly podcast about the people and places of fly fishing in Ireland. We're turning our attention to fly tying for this week's episode and our guest is a bit of a legend in Irish fly tying circles, it has to be said. And yet his flies might never have graced our waters and caught so many fish if it wasn't for a bit of a sliding doors moment in the life of Frankie McPhillips when he was out looking for work. Frankie will tell us all about that in a bit and Tom, maybe just give us a bit of a background as to Frankie's legendary status. Yeah, good man, Darry. Yeah, I mean, and that's it in a nutshell, legendary status. I mean, Frankie's flies became well known because for a very simple reason, they were catching fish. <laughs> and you know, and you know, you can they're beautiful flies and everything, but at the end of the day, flies that catch fish are the, are the really the ones that matter within and I'm talking within trout fishing circles. What makes those flies stand out like? Well, first of all, I mean, you'd know this as well, Darry. You'd know if you picked up a fly, one that was well tied, the difference between one that was well tied and one that was badly tied. Mm. I think any guy, anybody, any angler who fishes uh, can see by looking at that. And that straight away set them apart. I mean, Frankie's flies came out when there wasn't a lot of good commercial, uh, commercially available flies. And that's, I think that's what really, you know, got him going and that they were available. And, and then secondly, that they caught fish, you know? So, but was it also materials that he was using? Was it styles? Was it, I'm, I'm just wondering what took it to the next level like, for him. Well, what, yeah, what took it to the next level? I think materials no doubt played a part in it. Mm. Uh, like I remember seeing flies back uh, 20, 30 years ago, they were incredibly garish and badly tied. Frankie's initially had, you know, the, the Irish that Irish nondescript color, you know, <laughs> that, and, and like we harken back to, to, to uh, Kingsmill Moor, which we always seem to do here in a man made fish where he talks about, the, you know, very few primary colors and, um, you know, secondaries, but mixed and tertiaries and all these colors mixed and just come together and they give you something that you look at, you go, yeah. Uh, I would say like, you can't really describe the actual color of it. So, yeah. You know, something like that. And then But is you know, that yeah, is that yes very subjective for an angler that they go, yeah, that's yeah, it. Whereas another angler go, nah. Yeah, it, it is very subjective to the angler, but here's the thing, and it's the other factor we said, the catchability, right? Yeah. So if you have the, the yeah, and the other the other angler might say, I'm not too sure, but the next thing, you know, put it on a cast of flies and it catches a fish, then it suddenly becomes yeah. You know, yeah. and if you have confidence in what you're what you're fishing with, like you yeah. said, it's yet the yeah factor. <laughs> yeah, so um, by Frankie making them commercially available and available throughout Ireland, I mean that was another thing as well. Prior to that, you know, you would and, and he mentions that there there you know there were smaller outfits going around um, locally, but it, it was supply and, and as an angler, been able to get them all the time, mm. but. Um, it seems to me the kind of the demise of the Rogans in Ballyshannon kind of then Frankie nearly kind of stepped into that kind of breach into the vacuum of in terms of well-tied flies answering a, a commercial demand. Like He did really. Now, 
within Rogan's as well, Johnny Gall Flies uh, was born out of Rogan's and would have stayed on there and had some fantastic flies as well, but they're no longer with us, uh, Johnny Gall Flies. But you had from Rogan's, you had Johnny Gall Flies come in and you had Frankie at about the same time. Yeah. Then later on, you'd, um, you'd Flies of Ireland as well. Right. But that, right. they, that came on later, that's Basil's Flies. Great flies as well, great Irish flies. But yeah. and what was needed was there was after Rogan's, and remember, it wasn't easy to get Rogan flies. Right. You know, you know, they weren't well, it wasn't readily available. Like you didn't walk into any store like you can now. You didn't click online, you didn't press, you know, buy. Mm. You know, you know, it was mail order, a lot of things. And of course, you couldn't see them a lot of the time. But what you had is you'd these companies stepped in and made these flies readily available. Um, and as I said, Frankie, Donegal would have come out of that. Frankie then came and then we had the, the Flies of Ireland. So, and then now you've another one as well. And I said, you Ban Valley Flies in the north as well. So you, you have a couple of really just Irish ba- fly companies. And I put my own speaking in as well. Like uh, anybody who knows, I actually, I'm the Fulling Malaysian for Ireland. Mm. And there's a huge range of Irish patterns now with Fulling Mill. And like Jackie Mann has come on board as well with some of his patterns. So what I'm saying there is in the last 20, 20 or so odd years, it has gone from being hard to get well-tied Irish patterns to uh, a whole host of patterns, a whole range of patterns out there, well-tied and patterns of catch fish. And the other thing I thought was interesting talking to Frankie is um, uh, a Nearly 50 years he's been working for himself, always in demand, mm. never been sure of work, which is, as we get into yeah. it, you know, just testament to the quality of what he's doing. And the other aspect of it was, interestingly, talking to him is, you know, he talks about the product. You know, it, it, there's a very commercial uh, sense or an ounce to what Frankie does. And, you know, to survive nearly 50 years, you know, you're not just a one-man yeah. band in the garage sign. It's a very professional mindset and attitude that has to be taken in terms of, here's my products, here's what I'm doing, here's what the market is looking for. Um, and again, you know, you need that to, to survive nearly five decades. So um, kudos for Frankie for doing that. And as we find out, he might nearly not have become a flight tire either. Isn't that amazing, actually? I'd never known that. And it's just <laughs> such such a, a random way that he yeah. actually got into flight tying. It's, you know. Frank, we let Frankie tell us the story because it is. Yeah. It's a people Like I said, people mightn't be aware of it uh, that yeah, he might might have been lost to another game altogether. Yeah. But look, let's hear from Frankie now. Uh, and Tom, you first asked him when he first started tying flies. Well, Tom, I started tying flies uh, at 1976. Uh, I, I saw a nod, uh, a nod uh, in, in the local newspaper, you know, uh, and uh, in September 1976. And I was just back from sort of college in England and, uh, you know, I was looking for looking for jobs and things. And I saw an ad in the local paper. Uh, in fact, it was in both papers, so I wasn't going to miss it. Uh, it was the Fermanagh Herald and the uh, Impartial Reporter. And basically what the ad was about, it said, uh, fly tires wanted, you know, kind of an unusual one even for them. And uh, basically what it, they wanted to do, it was uh, it was a local, you know, development association, a bit kind of like the ADA, it was called Ledu. And what they were wanted to do was to train about uh, you know, six or eight people and open a fly tent factory in Fermanagh, you know. So, uh, you know, the economics of it then was that they still could do that in the, in the mid-70s. And uh, that's how I, I, I got sort of my first uh, fly tying lessons from, from that sort of initiative, you know. 
had you actually tied flies before this, Frankie? No, I hadn't tied fl- flies before this, Tom. Just saw the ad for 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 uh, fly tying, uh, and uh, uh, and that was you know went to the first first lesson. But I had been had been fishing before this. I'd been fishing, you know, from. From I was, you know, a young boy from, you know, nine or ten, you know, and uh, used to fish. We have a local river here, the Temple River, which, you know, still a lovely river. And, uh, you know, myself and a couple of friends, pals, used to fish basically, you know, stick stick out of the ditch, ditch the brown line, hook on, on the worm and the cork, you know, and that's how we started in the early days, you know, worm fishing. Uh, you know, the, the older men around the village would have all worm fished and as boys we'd have looked over the bridge at them and, you know, in, in, in the big floods, uh, you know, there was an old mill, kind of mill race on the main main river arch and uh, and uh, in the big pools there, you know, the, the older men would have always fished worms, you know, and you could see the piles of trout, you know, at that time, even from the bridge sitting in the grass, you know. So so uh, we started worm fishing first and then I would have took up fly fishing, bought my first fly rod but probably 1972, around that, you know, long time ago. Ah, right. And then you got into fly fishing again. Gas there, what you say about bridges. There's something about bridges, isn't there, Frankie? Yeah, yeah, the bridges. Yeah, well, you know, it was lovely. I still fish the Temple River and the Coldbrook out the road. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was thinking, you know, just lately, those the bridges are, you know, they're still sort of beautiful bridges, old stone bridges built in the, built in the, in, in the famine times, you know, built on actually famine relief, you know, so that was about maybe 1847, 48, you know. Nice. So I kind of still, you know, think think about them, the fantastic stone bridges. The main bridge in Temple was actually uh, knocked down. The centre stone went in a huge flood of thunderstorm in, in, in 71. So they had to, they built a temporary one and then they redid it, but it hasn't got the, you know, the original l- lovely stone arch, you know. So back to back to the fly time. So you, you responded to the ad uh, in the paper, and you ended up going to a fly tying. Well, I ended up going to what they were doing is they were running a fly tying lessons out at it was a big estate on on Lockair, and it was called the Duke of Westminster's estate. And they had a, a man there, a lovely man, a lovely Welsh man called Ken Ledward. And Ken was the head gardener there, and he was also a fly tire and a fly fisherman. So he actually, uh, you know, the, the intention was that they might get six or eight people interested. Myself and another lad turned up on the first night, and uh, the other lad didn't turn up on the second night. And uh, I was, uh, then I had sort of Ken Ledward all to myself for six uh, fly tying lessons during uh, those weeks in September, October 76, you know, and uh, after that, Ken said, right, that's really all I can teach you. You know, we, we started with a black panel and uh, went on to duck fly and then ended up maybe, I think it was a boundary golden olive, a Tommy Hanna's, you know, famous fly. And uh, yeah. that was all Ken kind of said, right, that's about as much as I can teach you. And then really through the next year, 1977, I really just took into it as a, basically as a hobby, but it was fairly intense and I kind of loved it and bought uh, John Venyard's Fly Dresser's Guide and, you know, and I bought a few books and really started tying a lot myself, you know. And uh, then I started full-time 1978, bought a 14-by-foot wooden hut, and um, which is still in the neighbor's back garden, and started there. <laughs> so, so God, you, you, you launched into it fairly quick then, Frankie. What, you're talking within 18 months, two years after you got That's to it, Ken. Tom, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but 14 months. And 
uh, basically during 1977, you know, it shows you at that time there weren't, you know, there weren't too many people, you know, tying flies and or even attempting to do it as a as a as a, as a business or as a full time business. So uh, even during 77, when I was would consider what I was doing was training, there were lots of people interested in looking for flies and the shop local shops were looking for flies. So when I started in, in January 1978, uh, you know, already I was dealing with the local local shops. You know, uh, lovely shop in Enniskillen called Frank Thornton uh, had a lovely shop in Church Street, uh, and then I. I, I actually started, I had no car at the time. My father would have brought me around to, uh, you know, in 78, into, into Sligo, uh, Cross, Monaghan, uh, Dundalk, uh, and up to Derry. And so it kind of all started. And basically, very quickly, there were a, a good number of shops uh, looking looking for flies, you know. Yeah. Wow, it, it really it really took off for you, didn't it? It did. Yeah, it did. Well, the thing was, I think there were very few people doing it, doing it full-time in Ireland, you know, and... Uh, Flies at that time, I think there were probably days of Cork, the, the famous shop in Ballyshannon, Rogan's was still on the go and, and very strong, of course, and they still had a team of maybe 12, at least 12 fly tyres, you know, in in the 70s and the 80s. And, but they were kind of, I suppose, exporting a lot of flies, you know, and uh, there was, you know, there was really, uh, there was a lot of, a lot of demand there for kind of locally, locally tied flies, you know. And um, so there, there was, I mean, I was talking to, you know, I, I deal with Barton Smith and I was just saying, I'm, 45 years this year uh, supplying flies to him, you know. So he asked me to do them at the 78 price as a special gesture, you know. <laughs> but I don't know. Dave, I said that to you, would he? I'm not very shocked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 90p a dozen, you know. <laughs> but no. <laughs> and, and there'll be plenty of takers at that, Frankie, I tell you. Oh, there would be. <laughs> Frankie, can I ask you, um, do you ever wonder if, say, that, that ad had been for another part of the country yeah. or you know what I mean that what was it a slight real sliding doors moment like what would have happened because it's not it's not like you were saying we're in tying flies as a kid growing up that you you know obviously no, I was fishing and, and I suppose that yeah. attracted me but you know uh, shortly after I started about six months after I started you know I'd, I had an uncle in Belfast who was he was a typesetter with Irish News you know and uh, we literally didn't have a phone at the time but the phone call came to the pub next door and I went out and he said look we're, we're, you know there's a job up here for you as a trainee reporter you know and uh, I had basically started flight and, and I realised if that uh, phone call had come uh, you know six or eight months earlier probably you know may, maybe would have had a, maybe would have been a different career you know I think it was chance that I just. Well, all I can that. say, Frank, if that had happened, Frankie, there would be a lot of trout. Very grateful <laughs> that you had a hat. <laughs> That's one way of looking at it, Tom. You know. <laughs> yeah, a lot of water under the bridge since that. But anyway, that's how it. That's how it started, and uh, I just kind of stuck at it. You know, liked it. They took to it, and. Uh, I, you know, then, then, you know, that the wooden hut was my life for uh, 14, 15 years. You know, I tied basically in that hut full time, uh, six days a week, you know, and I, I was good at timekeeping. I got up, but I started at eight and I worked uh, six or seven in the evening and the winter, sometimes longer hours, you know, but uh, it was, uh, and, and that was basically, you know, I was getting orders then and fairly regularly fly orders from, you know, I had a man in, in England, a man called Eddie Bradbury, probably some maybe older people might know the shop. It used to advertise in Trout and Salmon long ago, and 
basically what I did for him were nymphs, you know, midge pupa, which, you know, people today, like, you know, carbon early, uh, nowadays in the early years, you know, uh, the, the epoxy buzzers, but what I was tying then were just standard buzzer, you know, with a floss body, peacock curl thorax, and it was called goose by its sides, and, you know, Derek Bradbury, I, I still have the orders here, and basically what he, what I used to tie him were, he, he'd order 200 size 12, 200 size 14, and 200 size 10 of a black pupa, and then he'd order a red one and a golden olive one and a tan one of the same. And so there were huge amounts of flies. But I used to love getting that in in uh, in September because it meant a lot of work during the winter, you know. Tell me this, Frankie, actually. What was it like sourcing materials back then? Because it's a different, like I think of it now, and, you know, we're just one click away from getting, you know, yes, some from getting materials. Uh, yeah, well, Tom, you know, I, I basically started, um, I mean, I remember when I went into Ken Ledward and in, 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 out for the flight time lesson, I, I can still remember seeing the packet of tippets, you know, and the tippets that, and I can smell the mothballs yet, and that that, were, that was materials from, from vineyards in, in, in London, you know. So I fairly quickly opened an account with them. I think I got an account with them probably definitely in 1977, you know, and he was my main supplier. I mean, there were people locally who would have, you know, brought you pheasant tails and things. But the thing about that is, you had to clean them and you had to, you know, do all that. So buying your materials even then was probably the way to go. And it's I, I opened an account with Vineyard. There weren't too many. Uh, there was uh, Peter Vineyard's uncle, I think John Vineyard had a, a business that time. And there were other people. There was a man uh, called Ellis Slater in Walsall. Ellis who, Slater. I still have a couple Slater, of his come back a bit, you know. Yeah, uh, who, I have two who, of his cakes. Who did materials. And then later on, a few years after that, was a, a, a company called Envy who did vices and materials and capes, Indian capes, you know. So you looked up Trout and Salmon that way probably. Looked for an ad, uh, flight time materials available and that's how you kind of maybe wrote to them and, and they sent you out a catalogue and a lot of it was bought that way but Vineyard was a main supplier then you know yeah, as he is now Did you always work for yourself? Um, and the reason why I'm asking you that was did you always have work? Were you always busy? Was there ever a time where you were worrying oh, Jesus have I got enough work coming in next year? Or, no um, not, not work wise you know and I, I mean I, I I worked, I, I always worked, I did take on a few people and tried to train a few people and it just didn't work out, you know. Uh, you know, I had a few people on for maybe four, five, six months and then they went on to different things, you know. But I did, uh, as the kind of flight time developed, you know, in 19, you know, six years later from, from when I started, I went, I started doing, I mean, I did the Irish craft fair in Dublin and the RDS, you know, and I started doing that every year. So the, the business kind of changed a bit then and it went into, I mean, I started doing, you know, framed fishing flies and, and brooches and carded flies for, you know, a lot of craft shops and all around Ireland from, you know, Donegal down the west, Connemara. And, uh, and uh, so that kind of started into a sort of a, a different business. And, you know, it, it was a different time. Uh, you had no internet and when you went to Dublin, you know, you met, what happened that time is buyers actually came over now that do something like this, a Zoom phone call or a Zoom meeting. But then, you know, you, you think of that, it, it was a different time. And, you know, buyers were flowing over from America, Canada, to come to Dublin to, to look at all the crafts at that time. And crafts were strong at that time. You know, there were 20 potters at, in RDS at that time in Dublin. There were, you know, 12 wood turners, you know, and the handcrafts were, were sort of big then. So it kind of developed in a slightly different way through the through through the 80s and I started doing gift fairs and you know I went to 1987 I went to New York and I did the Jacob Javits I did I did uh, the New York gift fair and that 
you know, got me into shops in America with frames and things. So it, it all changed then, you know, even in the first, you know, eight to 10 years, you know. Yeah. And so just, like, that's amazing. So 45 years you've been working for yourself, always in demand. Yeah. Like that's that for, like that is some testament to your skill and, you know, the quality of the work that you're producing. Like, Yeah. Well, it's kind of, I don't know. It's probably, uh, I don't know. But, Must be doing something right, Frank. I don't know. <laughs> survive so far anyway whatever touch, touch wood and I'm fascinated by that the fact that you'd, you'd know you'd know England in doing it you just saw the ad and no. you know took to it like the proverbial duck to water like you know yeah well that was it yeah and I, I, I you know I do realise if I hadn't seen that I definitely don't think I you know, I you know I think it was just probably fate or whatever opening the papers that day you know you just saw the ad and it might have been something else you know meant to be Frankie yeah. meant to be meant to be meant to be, meant to be. Frankie, when did uh, when did you start getting your flies tied elsewhere or overseas? Well, I started that I started commercial flies uh, in the late nineties, uh, Tom. You know, because yeah. I had I worked with a fly tire from uh, the old uh, Rogan's factory in Ballyshannon, and oh, I, yeah. she was a great salmon fly tire. But that was way back in the in the in the late eighties and early nineties. You know. But she worked for me for a number of while. But then I kind of saw that, you know, flight time as a living, it's very difficult, you know. And mm-hmm. I mean, there were other companies started into it. You know, you had Donegal Fly, you had Rogan's themselves, and, and they were getting flies made abroad. And you could see that that was one way to go in that you can get really, really good commercial flight time. And the thing was about quality control, you know. And I still, you know, I have a commercial range, but I still tie a lot of flies myself yet as well, you know. You do, don't you? Actually, you still tie quite a few, don't you? Oh, I do, I do. And la- you know, last winter, I still, I, I still, you see, I still like the craft of fly tying. Uh, you know, and I, you know, I tied, I tie a lot of flies for, you know, I tie a lot of flies for Freenies and Galway for the weir, and tie a lot of salmon flies, and you know, Stanley's and Clifton specials and things like that. So, you know, whatever time I have in the rest of the business, and then I have a Dublin. You know, I, I brought out traditional Irish Dublin, nineteen ninety eight, twenty five years out. So that was kind of another product. So. You know, and I had different people to help me once that got busy, uh, you know, during the year. And, and uh, you know, that, that kind of, that was a decent product and a good product and still uh, going. It's a, you know? it's, a, it's a really good product. I can I can actually vouch for that here. Yeah, it's a really good product. Uh, another one that the Trout won, thank you for. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it was, it, it was an interesting one. It was just one I had, I had used colours all my life and I'd kind of developed my own blends by hand and then mm. it was a case of, you know, we were talking uh, maybe just about uh, Ted Malone and different people I met and who influenced me and uh, on colour and, you know, basically at that time in the early days, you know, people, I, I bought flies, you know, when I travelled around, I'd have met them maybe, you know, Charlie Doherty's at Donegal and, you know, you went down and you went into different shops. If you went to Dublin, you bought a few flies and, you know, I bought flies everywhere and you looked at colours and then different people sent you colours and other people sent you uh, pieces of dubbing and said, you know, we got this in Rogan's, I got this from wherever, you know. So color can became a thing of of um, of, of uh, you know gradual just process of collecting a lot, you know, a, a, a lot of stuff and then mixing and experimenting and and uh, you know, I, I always say to people, don't you know, people say, to me, oh, what's 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 the best, you know, claret and what's the best, you know, the song says forty shades of green, there's forty shades of claret, you know, there's forty shades <laughs> of olive. And, you, you know, and there, there are a lot of colours. And, you know, when you have a Dublin box of 12 colours, you know, I always say the lotto six colours, there's a million computations. You know, when you have 12 colours in a box, you can do what you like. And I think people should experiment and not, not hold, you know, don't be too worried if, if you know, your clarets slightly different. You know, 
take your medium tart, put a bit of black, put a bit of red in it, put you know something else in it, and just vary it a bit, and then you have something kind of special, you know. With YouTube and the internet and social media and all that, and it's so much easier to share information and ideas. Yes. Is there less innovation or less originality that our kind of yeah, ideas well, are coming together? No, I, I, I wouldn't say so. You know, because if if you think about it, you know, when we, you know, when you know when I, you know, when I started, and you know, the, you know, nobody really knew, knew each other. I mean, I didn't really. There was very little way of contacting other flight hires, and I'm sure there, there were other flight hires around the country. You know, but you know, there, you know, unless you actually saw somebody else having an advert in a paper or something, you you didn't know that he was doing this. And there were probably there were very good flight hires, maybe not people doing it full time, but the access, you know, so so basically, then uh, even learning flight hiring was totally a book knowledge. You know, yeah. at that time, and I, you know, I got uh, I I bought books and and. And, and try to do that. But what I will say then is, uh, we're talking about maybe influences in flight 10. In 1980, I, I was looking in the Flight Dressers Guild and I wrote to a man called Donald Downs, you know, very famous man, Donald, ran the Flight Dressers Guild. I later met him at shows in Holland places later on. He was a lovely man. And I said to Donald, you know, I need more flight time tuition, you know, and, that, you know, no internet, no YouTube. And he said, he gave me the names of six different flight dressers who were in the guild. And he said, look, write to these people and see how they might help you. And I did write to them all, and they were very. There was a man I still remember him. He was a, a, a he was a Mister Otte from down in Waterford, uh, a Roger Otte. I think he worked on a, a an estate in Waterford. There was another man on a prison ship up on the, the foil. Thought maybe better not, but anyway. And then there was another <laughs> man called Davy Watton uh, from oh, yeah. Margate. Very famous man, and I eventually went to Davy in 1980, 81, and I went to him for a week. And uh, that he, you know, we started Monday morning. On a, I remember a leprechaun lure and finished Friday evening late on a jock scot. So it was a kind of a, it was an A to a Z course in a week with Davy, and he was a, he was an absolutely brilliant flight iron teacher, you know. And would you be corresponding with the flight tires, you know, swapping ideas or looking for advice through correspondence, through letters? Is that the way? Yes, so at that time, yes. You know, and I mean, lots of people, you know, I, I, you know, I'd still have a lot of letters from people. And I mean, of course, a lot of people sent that, that. That was the way to do it at the time. They sent you letters. They sent you samples. They said, you know, could you tie this for me? And so I would have had letters. Not really much from abroad then, but basically letters from from uh, basically around Ireland, from different people, and I would have tied flies individually for them as well as 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 tying for for the shops, you know. But there was only at that time, you know, so so much you could do. But I would have tied, you know, as I say, you know, I I had a price list that came out in the early eighties. It had twenty, maybe five wet flies. It had eight to ten mayflies, and it had five or six salmon flies and a few nymphs, and that was it, you know. And you know, when you think about it, when I started, you know, no harm, no up, harm. <laughs> No, no harm at all. No, no, yeah. none, you know, when people fish the, the old traditionals, you know, you can go through it. I was thinking about it today. If you go through the alphabet, you know, and you go, you know, black panel, Connemara black, Dunkeld, you know, golden olive, hare's ear, you know, and, and that's the way. And those were staple flies, which to me are still actually absolutely brilliant flies because they were 100 years and more on the go by then and they'd proven their worth. And and uh, and so that, that that was the kind of and uh, you know salmon flies you know I I, I tied for a, a lovely man in in Bundoran at the time he was called Jack Phillips and he ran uh, this brilliant shop uh, and a seaweed baths at just at the very end in the west end of Bundoran and uh, Jack said to me I said Jack you know flies for the Bundrowis and Jack said well y- you need about four you know so you can imagine the comparison to the day he said <laughs> uh, uh, Curry's red shrimp he said Stokes tail 
a silver soap still and a silver doctor. He says, you don't need any more than that, you know. So, you know, I, I tied them flies for him, but can you imagine, you know? I mean, today, the, the difference. And, you know, the, those are basic flies, and, I, you know, it's the little salmon fishing I do, I still fish them, you know, and they're still very good. And they still work. They still they still work well. Uh, <laughs> they still work well, Tom. You know, and uh, so you know that 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 was all. It, it was a d- different times. Uh, but the thing about it is, if you're talking about developing flies, it's you know uh, you know you know Tom. You, you work for you know Fulling Mill, and you know you look every year when you go round a shop. You know people say there's too many flies, but if you go into a shop and you say the first question they're going to ask you in January, February is what's new. <laughs> you know, it's true. So, you know, and and if you say, well, there's nothing new, you know, <laughs> things aren't looking too good, and it's like it, it flies have become like fashion, like fashion, you know, what they are like yeah, fashion. Yeah, it's so and, true, and, Frankie. Right, and that keeps, it not only keeps the fishermen fishermen interested, it keeps the shops yeah. in business. So yeah. we have to keep we have to keep putting another leg on a green Peter or a, <laughs> you know a daddy with a whatever you know a muddler head and we have to keep in a way you have to kind of keep doing that to keep the business going because if if you only talk about the flies I mentioned then of course they'll catch fish but fishermen have enough of them you know have so the the, the idea of adding a red tag or something is good as long as you say it's a variant and you don't say it's an original you know Connemara yeah. black. You know, you know, you've got to say it's a variant of the original classic. Yeah, thing, well, you know? the, the, there are very new. There are very sorry. There are very few new, completely new patterns. Though. That's yeah. That's that's right, Tom. There are very few. You know, I mean, I, I you know, if you if you think about the way, I mean, the, the basic one of the basic changes in in fly dressing in my my time was in the early nineties when the dabbler came out, and that was a change of style. You know, and you know, for years, you know, we'd all been tying. Uh, straight mallard wings, you know, mallard and claret, sooty olive, golden olive. And then somebody brought me in the first dabblers. In fact, Donald McLaren was in the shop and I, I seen some of the first dabblers and I, I couldn't understand. I didn't like the look of them. Very you heavily hackled. I, oh, no, I didn't, Tom, at the time. No. Because they were very heavily hackled. And basically I thought, this is a mallard wing badly tied, you know. And <laughs> uh, it wasn't a mallard wing badly tied. It was a mallard wing splayed for a porpoise. To, yeah. to be dibbled in the surface of the water, you know, and that was the. I'd say in my time at a time in, uh, in the last fifty years, I think that's the biggest change in Irish fly dressing, and of course it's become a brilliant, uh, a brilliant style of fly because at the start it was meant to be dibbled and in the surface maybe as a sedge, but now you know you look at a silver dabbler, it's a fly pattern, you know. You look at a gold, uh, you know, golden dabbler, an olive dabbler. It's a hatch in May, you know. So it, it it's so versatile and it's and. You know, what kind of annoys me is that I was tying flies for years and years and years and putting straight mallard wings, and I never saw the, that idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah so, it's amazing. You know, but, like, didn't it, it, as we know, it came about by accident anyway. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't tied for purpose. It was a... Yes, it was, but it then was, it said... Became a great, it became a great style, you know, and yeah, and I often wonder, you know, what is the next, what is the next invention? You know, it, it's something that's sitting in front of our faces there on our flight hand bench, you know, and it, you know, it's not just putting in a blue tinsel or a holographic tinsel. It's it's a style okay. variation, and it's there, and it's going to happen. You know, who's going to do? I it, suppose you know? I suppose you could nearly say now. Would I be? I'll, I'll ask you this: Would you say that the gorgeous George? 
Well, well, yeah, in a way, it, in a way, it was because the gorgeous George, you see, basically the gorgeous George, if you look at it, was probably a variation on one of Kingsmill Moore's bumbles. You know bumbles, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It was that's a bumble. what I was thinking it really about. Was a yeah. and Palmer style bumble style. So, yeah. I mean, it's really a bumble with legs and jungle cock and a tag. And you know, in some ways, I can't. You know, you can't. Yeah. Sometimes flies that have everything, including the kitchen sink in them, work. You know. As 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 a as a professional fly desser years ago, I used to hate getting a fly with nine different materials in it. You know, because number one, very difficult to tie, very difficult to charge for. You know, the amount of work that went into them. But so, sometimes those flies, like the, the first one that I would have noticed, was the Raymond variant, a variant oh, of yeah. the traditional Raymond, mm. and it was a it was a very difficult fly to tie. I think it had about few four body different body hackles, a wing, a split wing, you know, a mixed wing, and then a front hackle, a yellow partridge, and that was difficult to tie. But the thing is, it worked, you know. Yeah. And, and, uh, it was a so great fly. Here, it's funny you should mention that. Now, I don't. Um, there was a guy. I don't know. Paul Giras. He comes here quite a bit. He's from Birmingham. He's come here for years. Yeah. And he mm-hmm. tied it of the one with the, the married wing. Wing. Yeah, of yeah. swan yellow, yeah. green, and red. And then uh-huh. a, a woodcock secondary rolled over that. Okay. Have you ever seen that one? I haven't seen that one, Tom. Now, I have seen the mixed wing in that, but I yeah. haven't seen, no, I haven't seen with the, the, the woodcock rolled on the top, you know? Yeah, it used, to be, it used to be deadly up here, and it used to be deadly up here for salmon. No, yes. that was twenty years ago. It hasn't it hasn't really fished at all since then. But like it was just yes. seriously. I mean, we wouldn't, and we used to really plague Paul to dress mm-hmm. them because for, like, for them, yeah, yeah. That's the thing. And flies become, you know, I, I I always think so. You know, people say that fly doesn't work anymore, and you you know yourself, you know, from fishing that the fly doesn't work anymore because the fly's not been fished anymore. You know, <laughs> flies. You know, classic. You know, that's it. The classic flies, like, you know, the Melvin Gosling, you know, you, you look at it and, you know, people say, ah, well, it doesn't work anymore. Ask how many people are putting it on, maybe even on Melvin. No, still maybe on Melvin there. But, you know, but people aren't just, you know, a fly loses its popularity because it's not been fixed, you know. A fly loses its popularity because uh, Frankie arrives in in January and tells everybody what's new, you see. <laughs> well, that's uh, <laughs> yes, Tom, I think, I, I think we call that too shame, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but yeah, that happens. But I, I'll give you a, a very, a very, a very quick one. I, I seen a fly in, in trout and salmon. It was a small mayfly, and I, I tied a kind of variant of it. It was it, I called it the CDC Grizzle May, and I went down and I had it in the range for about six years. You know, you, absolutely nobody buying it, nobody catching any fish on it. You know, and I said I, I, I'm going to quit it. You know. And then I had some, I had some down in, in, in Freenies and Galway. And then one day, uh, Tony Freeney or Robbie rang me and said, look, uh, just, would you send me down a couple of dozen, you know? And basically what had happened is somebody came in, and this can happen in any shop yeah. with any fly, yeah. and said they got four or five fish in it the previous day. There's a few anglers in the shop. They hear that. <laughs> they want it. They fish it. This is, this is the truth. By the end of the Mayfly, you know, they were looking like for something like 15, 20 dozen of these flies. This is a fly that was going to the bin, had never been fished the previous, you know, had been useless the previous six years. Yeah. So sometimes that happens. A fly's not been fished and then suddenly people start, work, you know, using it again, you know. Frankie, I have to say, I have to admire your honesty, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, a, there's a lot of one-hit wonders, you know. There is, yeah. <laughs> um, know, if it's a one-hit wonder for you, then it's great. Or for me, like, 
I, you know, I'll yeah. put up with the one-hit wonder if I'm used it when it's working. Yeah, I know. And if you're the only one has it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Frankie, what's your favorite tie to your favorite fly to tie? Favorite, favorite fly. Well, that, that goes back to probably the days when I tied, you know, a lot of flies in the wooden hut. And I, I like flies, number one, that I could, it, it boils down to materials which are easy to, easy to handle. And one of my, probably my favorite fly of all was, was tying, uh, tying French partridge mayflies, you know, straddle bugs, they call them, you know, wet, wet maize. And today, even, I just, I, I still love them. I love the raffia ones. You know, I think they're superb mayflies yet. Uh, and, and that book really boils down to the, the handling the hackle. French partridge is probably one of my favorite hackles to work with. It's easy to work with. It, it, when, when you wind it, it actually looks like something. It's very full and it, it creates a lovely fly, a mo- moving fly. And I, I, I always tie it, you know, a lot of people now tie them by the tip. I still tie them by the stalk. And, I, you know, I tie them by the stalk behind the eye, take the bobbin holder behind it and then wind the hackle down to the bobbin holder and take the bobbin holder through to the front of the eye again. And the reason I do it that way is I, I, I find that helps the hackle. It splits it a wee bit and it sits up and it gives the fly movement, you know. If you want a, a, a partridge may to sink more and to lie back more, then tie it in by the tip. You know, you can double it or not or double it when you're, you're winding it. So, so you know, you, you know that, but I, I just love French partridge mayflies and, you know, you know, if you wanted to sit me down and do that all day, I could still do that. I just partridge They are mayflies. a lovely feather to work with. I really agree with you on that, frankly. Lovely, yeah. Tom. You know, they're soft, they're pliable, and, and also they're very, very strong, you know. You know, it's a strong, it's a strong feather. Some, that, the feather you mentioned before there, Woodcock, you know, I wasn't a big favourite. I used, used to tie the Woodcock series in the early days, Woodcock and yellow, Woodcock and green, hardly ever fished now. But the thing about Woodcock and the wing, even rolled or tied, uh, paired, was it was a kind of a weakish feather. You'd know that mm. yourself, you know. Yeah. Not the strongest feather, you know. So, you know, partridge is strong and soft, you know, as well, you know. Where I'd heard a lot about those flies, I've read about them, was, and you've mentioned them already, was in Ted's book. Ted Malone's book. Yes, that's, did you, that's right. Did yeah. you help him with any of the dressings for that? You knew Ted, didn't you? You fished with Ted. I did. Yes, I did. I knew, te- I knew Ted well. He, he came here around in 1981, 80, 82. And he, had, he was writing a book at that time, uh, Irish Trout and Salmon Flies, you know. And uh, how he first came, uh, came down... Uh, he came down the first day and I wasn't here. My mother said there's a very well-dressed gentleman that appeared with his wife and, and he, she said he'll be back. And uh, so he came back and uh, he wanted me to tie a fly. It was a, 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 like a classic salmon fly. It was called a Grey Thunder. And he was doing a special edition of his book on uh, uh, Irish trout and salmon flies. So I tied 60 salmon flies for him and he came back. And that's how we kind of met and got to know each other. And uh, then he had, a, he had a, a cottage just up in Donegal between Pettigo and uh, Donegal Town and so we used to go up there and um, we used to fish the wee hillocks up there and uh, that's how I got to know him and, you know, that became along, you know, oh, probably, well, not 40 years, but not far off it, you know. And I'd just like to say I, I was talking to his wife. I went to see his wife the day she's in hospital recovering and she's in good form. And I, uh, I'd just like to say hello to her and that, you know. But he was he was a great man. Uh, he had he had, uh, you know, he had written uh, Irish Trout and Salmon Flies in 1980. 8283 and uh it it was a you know a brilliant book because it number one it dealt with the history of fly tying and the mayflies in it if you look at it again if you go through it 
it's it's a it's a fantastic book for dressings and exact dressings. You mentioned and the fly there. It's the first time I ever saw the straddle bug. Isn't that book? That's right. Yeah, because I, I was intrigued by the name Frankie. For it sounded great. It sounded like a fish catcher even then. Yes. It did, it did, Tom, and, and it's full of them. And, of course, a lot of the dresses he would have collected, those would have been some, uh, particularly Ed fished the urn in the 50s and 60s. He fished with a man called Sam Anderson. And a lot of those early mayflies collected, he would have collected, you know, from Rogan's. And they were kind of fairly heavily dressed mays, lovely mays with plenty of hackle and a couple of two or three, maybe partridge, French partridge, hackles, ordinary English partridge neck, lovely, you know, fluffy mayflies, you know. And Edward of them, he, he, he was very friendly with a man called Sam Anderson, who was lived in the next village to me, only three miles away originally. And the two boys used to go down and spend two weeks on the air in, in a tent during the mayfly uh, at Hills Island down there. And, uh, they, they, you know, stories like he told me loads of stories from there. You know, they used to go down and Sam Anderson used to put a kite up when he landed if it was a windy day. And he said that's to show the sign that the major's in residence, you know. And they, they then fished for two solid weeks in the Mayfly every year for a long number of years down there, you know. And he was he, he passed away a couple of years ago, um, Frankie, he but he was still fishing up until he was, what, 96, yeah. 97? Yes, he fished at the start. He fished in Donegal, and then he moved, and he had a great uh, connection. He moved down to Corriva House. Uh, you Tom would know it there beside yeah. our Derard, you know. And uh, he fished out of there for years. Became friendly, very friendly with uh, uh, with uh, John Oliver Malloy, and he would he would have been his boatman there for a long. I think he might have been uh, twenty five to thirty years down there. You know, loved his Mayfly fishing. Went Mayfly fishing for. Two weeks. He used to always call through with me in the shop and on his on his way down, get a few flies and had a chat. And uh, and then uh, he went also in September. He loved the September fishing, and he went again for about I think ten to twelve days in September. You know, just loved that and loved the whole, uh, uh, you know, the, the, like the beauty of that down there and uh, the kind of relaxed way of fishing. You know, he wouldn't have been a competitive angler, Ed, but he, but he he just loved it and he loved he loved fly ten and everything about it. You know. And uh, tell me this, it's, uh, Carb was when he was last fishing, was it? He, he was out in... Carb was fishing? his last, yes. And again, I think Ed's dead now, I'd be wrong, I would say five years, he must be five years dead. So he definitely fished Carb about seven or eight years ago. And that, I know I fished with him the last time he fished, uh, and we went out with John Oliver. Uh, and that would have been, not sure what, it wasn't, May, I don't think it was Mayfly time, I think it was uh, September. You know, but uh, there is some videos down there of Ed and John Oliver out fishing. I think Duke Derard, one of the community associations, did a video, and might have been uh, John Oliver Malloy's son, maybe videoed that or uh, filmed it. But there's definitely some video of of them out fishing and making tea on on carb. You know. And Frankie, tell me this: Do you do much fly fishing yourself? Like, how did you try and get that balance between the tying and the flying? Because well, obviously, the tying is the job. Like. Uh, well, tying is a job, and t- and the busiest time is now. You know, uh, you know, Tom knows that traveling with it, and yeah. it's you know. So uh, you know, I get very little mayfly fishing done now. I do fish. I kind of start maybe when it gets a bit quieter, maybe in July and August. You know, I fish the rivers here. There's a couple of hill locks beside me. Don't do much of the big lock fishing. Have been down to Carab and fish it. Maybe I might get a day or two on it uh, uh, on it a year. I, you know, I'm a no manglers, and again, a few days a year up on the salmon fishing on it, you know, last year. So I still enjoy me fishing, you know. I love the river here beside me, and uh, uh, I, I just, when I get out, I'm not a competitive angler. I used to fish the World Cup and enjoy it uh, years ago, but uh, I, um, I just, I, I just, whatever fishing I get there, I enjoy it, you know. Frankie, have you any um, 
tips and advice for people maybe that are listening to this that they might want to get into flight time or want to improve their flight time? Yeah, well, no, well, the first thing I'd say is, is you know, go, the, the, you know, although with the internet is 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 a brilliant way of of learning, you know, and I mean, uh, my time you learn by book, but the internet, you just look at it now, and you look at all the, the famous flighters, you know, Davy McPhail, you know, Ryan Houston, who you know put up a lot of you know brilliant tires, who put up great videos on how to, learn. and you know, for a young person starting out now, if they really want to, they've got so much information there at their fingertips, you know. But what I would say is that. If you've got a local class or a local person who can teach you, there are some things in flight time that you really probably can't learn from the from the internet, you know. And uh, you know, I, I always think there are things on video like uh, one of the one thing in flight time is a thing for winging. It's called a pinch and loop, and it's very difficult to do in video because your fingers actually are covering the material. And it's better shown by kind of computer graphics in a book, you know. So I think books shouldn't be dismissed. You know, Terry Griffith's Beginner's Guide to Flight Hand shows everything up close. It shows the pinch and loop method, which is a big method in winging, mallard winging, uh, grey duck quill winging. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a brilliant, brilliant book. And it shows you because it can show the thread through your fingers in computer graphics, which you can't do in video, you know. So good photography. There's, you know, another great book is, you know, there's lots of great books. But you know, Randall Kaufman in America, brilliant photography on, you know, tying in post hackles, uh, tying, you know, stimulators. Each, each, each part beautifully photographed, you know, and so, you know, don't, you know, I wouldn't do away with books and flight time. They still have a part to play. And, uh, you know, but and with flight time, I'd say to, to, to anybody starting, you know, go and have a lesson with your local club. You know, that's one of the best ways, you know. The, 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 you know, there are men there who have been fish, flight time and fishing for years, and it's a brilliant social thing. And it's, it's a great way of doing it, other than the Internet or along with the Internet, you know. That's so true because the internet is fantastic and you learn so much, but there are little things, and you just mentioned it there, the whip finish or, or even yeah. any sort of knot just to, 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 to finish off a fly. It's very yeah. hard to learn that from the internet, whereas somebody, if you can actually look and stand and look around at somebody, it, it, makes, yeah. a huge, it makes a huge difference. So, yeah, definitely, there are a couple of things that if you get a chance, you're so right, uh, yeah, it's got to go, go to somebody. And I think there are some things, you know, that video, you know, it, some things take a bit of time. You know, there's one thing, and uh, not going about it, but in, in, in tying a green Peter wing for I was, I've always been asked over the years and years how do you tie a green Peter wing without splitting it, you know? You know, and, and the basics of it are, you know, you take your first turn at the back of the wing and you and all subsequent turns must go to the right or towards the eye. And that avoids it splitting. Now, it's very difficult to kind of show that on a video. Uh, you can talk to somebody and really show them that well from being with somebody and, and explaining that. And some videos just don't explain that, you know. So there's there's loads of processes in flight time that need probably a wee bit because a description of tension, you know. Somebody might say, well, wind the tie and silk around the, the hook. But they're not really saying if you want to maybe put on a false hackle, increase the tension to wind the, to pull the hackle across mm. the hook, you know. There's yeah. loads of stuff like that that you can learn from. A, you know, a good flight hire and a good class that you won't get on, on YouTube, you know? I agree. Um, it, there is a lot to be said, as, you know, just learning in person, like, as well. Um, yeah. Look, not yeah. saying, not denigrating, that it's incredible the amount of information and what is out there on social yeah, media yeah. and online. Um, just last few questions for you, Frankie. Um, the historic side of it, I'm fascinated by, obviously, um, and the influence traditionally of Irish flight hire, you know, back in the 1800s and all that stuff and then you had the Rogans 
nowadays is it possible to pinpoint is there a predominant like is there a predominant kind of influential culture of flight tying now is it like americans is it english is it scandinavians what where where are you seeing the kind of the biggest influence when it comes to flight tying now the american influence to me was probably more so back in the in the in the in the late 90s and the early 2000s you know when we started actually taking in Amer- you know american flies people started you know with, uh, there weren't many wolves fished in ireland before the 90s and and, and that you know so that that kind of came came to us you know but i think i think styles intermingle a lot i don't think anybody's I don't think anybody's really any stronger. And I think Irish fly tying at the minute, Irish fly tying now compared like to the time I started is is way, way ahead. There are so many brilliant fly tires around the country now, you know, and, so, you know, I mean, people doing it, you know, both, you know, semi-professionally, you know, professionally, there, there are lots of fellas out there who are brilliant, brilliant tires, you know, and uh, that, that's pro- definitely, you know, I'd, I'd say that's, probably due to, you could say, probably YouTube and it yeah. being available, you know. Uh, some people have learned totally from YouTube and they're they are absolutely superb tyres, you know. And the standard of flight time in the country now is, I would say, at its highest. You just go to the Galway, go to the uh, Irish uh, fly fair, you know, and you'll just see, you know, 50 fly tyres, all experts in different parts of it. You know, the thing about it, when I grew up and I did it, I was doing it as a business, so I was concentrating on I didn't have time probably to experiment too much because it was a matter of tying 80 or 100 flies a day to get them out to get bed you know so that in some ways it restricted you it made you good and made you fast at certain stuff but in other ways you know something that would have took a lot of time I probably would have left you know what I mean I, yeah. so it, it, it was a different way of doing things but uh, you know more amateur fly tires can experiment with a lot of different things and you know they have the, the time to do it but a lot of brilliant fly tires in Ireland at the minute you know Suffice to say, Frankie, if that ad was in the paper nowadays, you'd, they'd be inundated <laughs> with applicants. <laughs> the problem, oh, yeah, they probably more would, you two. know. But I, th- I think they'd have to p- pay them more than 90p a dozen, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Frankie, we always ask uh, our guests for their most memorable fish on the fly. Do you have right. one? Yeah, well... I'd, I'd have to say I'd have to say with one that I remember uh, uh, probably most would be my first first salmon on the fly and uh, and I'll tell you why it was got because it it involved it just involved both the, the not so much the fly but how it how it was caught and I caught a, the first salmon on the fly was caught on the on the on the the ray up and it's called spelt the ray up in Falchara North Donegal and I used to go up there in the 80s and. Uh, I met a man up there. He was an Irish teacher from Navan called John Gallagher. He was John the Station. lived in Station House up at Falkara. And he kind of took me under his wing. He used to tie flies. And he used to. He was the first man I saw tying tube flies with the with uh, the the biro, the, the inside of a biro pen. You know, he used to tie basic tubes with badger and a bit of red hair in it. And was brilliant up on the rye, you know. But he told me one day, we were in the pub. John liked his pint of Guinness. And we were in the pub one day. And one night, and he said, look, I was said I, I'll go fishing tomorrow and he said look it's given sunshine but if there's a breeze go out you know and, and and this is what he said to me he said to me if the salmon comes up at you he said and doesn't take it turns away he said don't throw the, don't throw your fly out again at it he said rest it walk down walk down or go back a bit and wait for five minutes and come down again sure enough went down to the rye one of the pools near the sea up came the fish to the, the curry's red shrimp and didn't take it and I suppose if he hadn't said that to me, I'd have fired the fly right out again. 
but I went, waited, went back up, came back five minutes later, came down, up he come, took it again, and I caught him, you know. So that was a kind of a lesson, but it was also the first fishing. It was kind of memorable. So it was only about three pounds. Did you tie the fly? I tell you that was one of my own Curry's red oh, trim sorry. That's okay. So. Think of hook, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Brought it up to show the galleries. And, and there's a photograph of it somewhere there yet. Yeah. Ah, lovely. Lovely. Yeah. Before we go, Frankie, just something there that we were chatting beforehand, and you alluded to it there earlier on about the, the bridges on the tempo and the older yeah. bridges. And you were mentioning to me, like a lot of them were done the family relief, but something about was there poems about them or what? Yeah, well, Tom, you know, I kind of do, I, I do, I, I'm in a kind of writer's group here as well, and for, and for, uh, it's called Fermanagh Writers, and we do things, and uh, funny, when I, sometimes when I'm out fishing, I I kind of, I look, I, I you know, I love the, I, anybody out fishing now, if you go and fishing in Connemara, you know yourself, part of the fishing, of course, is your scenery and your surroundings, you know, you can't, but, you know, that that's, that's part of the fishing experience, you know, and if you're fishing in beautiful scenery or under lovely bridges, it's, it's just all, all all part of the day, you know. So, like, I I have I have a, there's a, a couple of there's a lovely bridge up above Temple here. It's called Tatton Weir Bridge, you know. So I, sometimes when I'm out fishing, I think about the people who fished here before, you know, and uh, maybe not so much uh, even fly fished, but did all sorts of fishing from now till a couple of thousand years ago. So I recently wrote a poem, and I don't know if you'd mind me. Oh, please, it do. Or, please do, please do. It's love it's to hear. Very it. short. Yeah. Very short. Well, I, I I give you a. a a, a, a short blast of it. It's called Under Tatton Weir Bridge, which is an old bridge built by the, the, the famine relief in, in the 1847-48. Uh, under Tatton Weir Bridge. I cast my fly under Tatton Weir Bridge, and as it floats back to me, overhead I hear a 40-tonner roar, charting pallets of best before the vast warehouses of plenty. I cast my fly under Tattenweir Bridge, and as it floats back to me, I hear the sighs of famine men lift stone after cut stone, clacked into place to form the perfect arch. I wonder to stave the hunger that they ever take a rising trout in May or grape the November salmon on his lie. I cast my fly under Tattenweir Bridge, and as it floats back to me, I see you crouched in the long bank grass, flint spear by your side, no catch and release then for salmon, trout, or thirsty deer. River food brought back to wrath or home beside the standing stones in the hills of Ballyray and Toppet. As darkness falls under Tattenweir Bridge, the little trout swim side by side. Hungry chicks squawk in the redwood nest. The heron begins his river glide. That's it. Well, far. Well, far. Lovely. Absolutely lovely, Frankie. Yeah, well, that's just the bridges on the temple, yeah, which are, mm-hmm. which are uh, you have a lot of lovely bridges around Ireland. They all have probably a lot of them the same history, you know. Yeah. 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 They've seen a lot. Obviously a strong creative streak in you, Frankie, between the, yeah. the flight time and the writing and everything. Like. Well, I, I think, I, I don't think I'll be making me, me, me money at the, at the writing yet now, Dara. <laughs> well, I tell you, beautiful writing, um, Frankie, absolutely beautiful. Thanks. Um, th- and thank you for sharing it as well. Like, really appreciate it. It's great. Yeah, not at all. Do you know what? Sometimes when you're when you're doing interviews, you kind of think, "Ah, this will just be a straightforward." But the the I never realized, you know, the different angles in terms of the ads. You know, what way yeah. your life took yeah. off. You know, the forty five years of time, and yeah. you know, just I, I get a sense of very kind of very philosophical about it, like as well at the same time. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, it's you know what? It, uh, yeah, it's it's it 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 brought you in a different way. And of course, there are times during anything like that that you 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 know you you uh, you think about it and you know should you stop? Should you go on? You know. But it's most different different uh, things happened in you know and 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 it just uh, I stay you know kind of stayed stayed at it you know and I don't regret it. I kind of met you know I did meet and uh, and still meet a lot of people in fly fly tying and the people I met in fly tying and 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 fly dressing and in the fishing business and in, in you know in fishing shops and anglers in general like as that's just been a great experience you know and the, the anglers are generally of a certain type you know they like the environment they like a lot of things and uh, you know it's just been it's been a good time you know well long way to continue Frankie thank you very much for joining us on the latest episode thanks very much Frankie it was an absolute pleasure having you on it was brilliant thank you thanks Dara and thanks Tom our thanks to Frankie McPhillips for joining us on the show and don't forget to rate, review and follow the Ireland on the Fly podcast on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. And if you do want to have a look at Frankie's flies, you can just go to frankiemacphillips.com where you will see a whole range of selection of what Frankie ties and is available there. So highly recommended. So myself and Don will be back with another episode about the people and places of fly fishing in Ireland. <laughs>